So we've gone out of our way recently to remind you that the Bible is about Jesus. And I just keep repeating it over and over and over again. And I know because I get snarky comments every once in a while. I know how frequently I repeat myself. The point of the Bible is to show you who Jesus is. And what Jesus is like and how Jesus has won His people. The purpose of the Scriptures is to teach you about the coming King. And if nothing else comes of this whole series we've done in Samuel... I I want you to walk away with that branded so completely on your mind that it's second nature. But as I reflected on last week's passage, and I looked forward to this week's passage, I've begun to fear that that statement may not go far enough. Maybe it's not enough to say the Bible is about Jesus and leave it there. Because the passage we're about to read demands something from you. Demands that you do something with your knowledge of Jesus. And as I thought about it, I realized that the Bible never once teaches us about Jesus without expecting us to respond. So let me amend my statement. The scriptures were written to teach you about Jesus. Yes, that's correct. But... That's not enough. The scriptures were written to teach you about Jesus so that you may respond to him rightly. Every passage in the Bible was written so that you might know who Jesus is and what he's like and what he's done. But it's not enough to know those things. It's not enough to understand those things. It wouldn't matter, and this is important, especially for a church like ours. It wouldn't matter if your knowledge of the nature and the character and the work of Christ was comprehensive if you did nothing with that knowledge. No. Every passage in the Bible was written so that you might know Jesus and so that you'd act. To be clear, it's impossible not to act. Really, there is no knowledge of Jesus that isn't followed by action. Inaction is its own sort of action. Even believing that you can know about Jesus without acting upon that knowledge is its own sort of action. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that the scriptures were written so that you'd know the truth about the coming king and so that you'd respond to that truth rightly. And for me, that raises a few questions. What is the right response to the coming king? And what is the wrong one? Those are good questions. And we'll have our answer from this passage that we're going to read this morning. There are two responses to the coming king. And this this passage explores both of them. So I want you to open your Bible to 1 Samuel 17.50 and read with me. 1 Samuel 17.50. Hold up your Bible if you're there. Awesome. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. 
and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistine as far as Gath and the, and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shiriam as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Okay, I want to pause for a moment. We started reading right here on purpose because everything that we're about to read is set in the context of David's startling victory over the mighty enemies of Israel. I want you to notice how carefully these sentences are worded. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. You didn't need that again, but it's there. See, the author is just taking care twice to remind you that David, who is a shepherd boy, who shouldn't even be on the battlefield in the first place. David has just effortlessly crushed the giant of Philistia with a rock. He brought nothing to the battlefield but a sling and a staff and a handful of stones. And while the armies of Israel trembled on the sidelines, clad in armor and bearing the weapons of war, this kid sprints toward death, bold as a lion, shouting of the might of God with nothing but river rocks and a stick. The point is that this shouldn't have happened. A lot of ink has been spilt exploring how David had the tactical advantage over Goliath because he was free of constraints like heavy armor and a shield. A lot has been written about how his youth and his speed and his choice of weapon were some sort of advantage over the clumsy and labored movements of this giant guy. But the author is actually saying the opposite. David should have been slaughtered on this battlefield. He was facing the mightiest warrior of the mighty army of Philistia. He was, this guy was tested in battle. He was strong and he was quick. And he had killed many able-bodied soldiers or else he wouldn't have been there in the first place. The armies of Israel were terrified for a reason. And David is young and untested and unarmed without armor or shield or shield bearer. The point of the story is that David's victory over Goliath was impossible. And the only reason that David, David's steps into that valley weren't his last steps is that this is the coming king who's full of the Spirit, and when he speaks, he speaks the words of God. And when he acts, he acts with the might of God. That's the only reason he survived. Because he is the Messiah, the Anointed. 
That's who Messiah means. Anointed. This is the anointed coming king of Israel. This is God's means to defeat his enemies and to rescue his people. This is the king. And the might of God is in is on display in his humility. I want to notice something here. When David defeats his enemy, the armies of Israel rise up with a shout. They rally. They follow this unarmed shepherd onto the battlefield full of confidence in God's might. Now, they just a moment ago were trembling on the front lines, immobile. But now they're shouting and rising up and striking down the enemies of God. What changed? What changed between a moment ago and this moment? Their king. That's what changed. Saul, the pretender, was hiding in a tent behind the front lines, and the people trembled likewise. David, the true king, proclaims the might of God and rushes towards the enemy, and the people fight valiantly. It makes me wonder, I wonder, when the armies of Israel rise up and shout, I wonder if they knew that this young boy, David, was the promised king of Israel. I don't know. And I don't think we can know because the text doesn't say anything about it explicitly. But we do know a a few things for sure. We know that Saul was told more than once that he had been rejected as king. Saul's was an illegitimate kingdom. God had chosen a better man to lead his people. And we know that Saul was watching Samuel closely to keep him from anointing a replacement king. That means guards were placed, a network of spies throughout the territory of Israel, watching for unusual movements of the priest. And we know that Samuel invited all the elders of the town of Bethlehem to anoint to the anointing ceremony of David. They all watched as oil trickled down his beard. And we know that David's reputation as a man of valor and as a man of war and as a wise man and a moving speaker and as a man blessed by God, we know that his reputation, while yet a shepherd boy, was being whispered throughout the kingdom. So there must have been rumors, right? Why is Saul watching Samuel so closely? What is he afraid of? What are these whispers from the merchants of Bethlehem? Who is this young man, David, who seems to have captured the attention of all the tribes of Israel? Perhaps they're beginning to suspect that their pretender king would soon be replaced and that God's blessing was returning to the people. Perhaps they're beginning to suspect that the coming king, the better king, was at hand. And I want to suggest that David's victory over Goliath meant something to them more than just a temporary reprieve from oppression. The armies of Israel rallied behind David, and I'm suggesting that perhaps there was some degree of hope in that shout of victory. 
Hope not just in reprieve, but hope in a coming kingdom. Okay, keep reading. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son this boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. Okay, so I want to address something here. Because when I read this, I was confused. And I know the same thing happened to a few of you because you've told me about it. This passage raises a question. And I want to state the question as I first asked it, and as many of you have asked it, and then I want to explain to you why it's the wrong question. So here here it is. How on earth does Saul not know who David is? Right? I'm reading this and... What? I get it. I'm right there with you. But that's the wrong question. See, the text here seems, and that's the key word, seems to indicate that Saul doesn't remember David at all. Because he's watching this guy approach the battlefield and he starts asking all sorts of questions about him. And that doesn't make sense at all because just a moment ago we read that Saul was told about David, he met David, he heard the songs of David, he loved David, and he made David his armor bearer. So either Saul has an extraordinary case of amnesia or something's off, right? It seems incongruent. And more than a few guys suggest that this means that the story of David contradicts itself because there's always, there is always a guy in the back corner of the room shouting, see, I told you the Bible was written by a bunch of liars. So a lot of work has been done by good guys with bright minds to attempt to rearrange the narrative to suggest alternative readings. Several really bright scholars have suggested that the stories aren't in order and that the author arranged them achronologically because he's making a point about David or about Saul or about the spirit. And others suggest that Saul's mad that he's lost his mind because of the tormenting spirit which haunts him. And all of this may very well be interesting to read, but I don't think it's really relevant to the text itself. Because Saul isn't asking about David. Saul's asking about David's family. Reread the text. Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, king, I don't know. The king said, Inquire whose son... This boy is. And then Abner brings him before the king and he says, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So look, Saul, while he was yet trembling in his tent behind the front lines, made a lot of promises to anyone who could defeat Goliath. Remember the words of the soldiers? 
Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and will make his father's house free in Israel. So these rashly made promises were substantial. Not just materially substantial, but politically substantial. This man who, by the way, Saul has no idea who he's promising this stuff to. This is Saul's desperate move. Saul, who can no longer plead with God to rescue. He's been rejected and he's cursed. This is his last ditch effort to keep together his broken kingdom. These promises to this unknown entity would forge an alliance, would instantaneously catapult a young man into political power and influence and royalty. And that's a lot. And on the other side of David's victory, Saul begins to feel the regret of a pretender king who has just handed the honor of Israel to an unknown And so he begins to ask questions because he fears his own undoing. Who is this man's father? What house have I freed? And what rival have I empowered? See, that's important to note. Not only because it restores the integrity of the narrative, but because we get our first glimpse of Saul's jealousy and fear of the true king of Israel. That jealousy and fear will dominate this story for many pages. But just here, at the outset, Saul's questions reveal his heart, which we've seen is desperately clinging to a kingdom that's slipping through his fingers. Saul suspects him. Already he suspects him. Because he sees God working through this man, and he sees the armies of Israel following him into battle. The true king has arrived, and Saul is terrified. Keep reading. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, I want want you to note something. Until this moment, even after David marches courageously toward a terrifying enemy, even after David effortlessly slayed the giant, even after Goliath's head is in his hand and the enemy's camp is plundered and victory is secure, until this moment, not one man has honored him, the faithful victor of Israel. Not one. He's sent on an errand by Jesse, his father. He is mocked by Eliab, his brother. He is despised by Goliath, his enemy. He is questioned by Saul twice, but never once is he honored. 
until now. But the faithfulness of Jonathan shines like a bright light. We need to make some connections here because if you're not careful, the story of David and Jonathan might become merely a template for friendship. That's how it's treated all the time. This is what true friendship looks like. See, these guys really do love one another, and so they care for one another, and they support one another, and they protect one another. And that's true on one level. But Jonathan's affection for and his allegiance to David is not there to teach you how to befriend people. Look, this is Jonathan. When all of Israel was faithless, he was faithful. When all Israel cowered in caves, he stood before the armies proclaiming that God was able. This is Jonathan who whispered to his armor bearer before routing an army. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Throughout this story, Jonathan has been to us a picture of faithfulness. What Jonathan does is what faith looks like. How he acts is what it looks like to set your hope in the God who saves. So when we see Jonathan, the prince of Israel, humble himself before David and covenant himself with David and give to David his finest robe and his finest sword and his finest armor, when we see the prince of Israel humble himself in service toward a young shepherd boy, we shouldn't see merely friendship. This is faith on display. Faith in God and faith in God's coming kingdom and in God's king. David has been rejected by his brothers. He has been mocked by his enemies. He has been questioned by his king. None have honored God's anointed until the faithful son appears. The story of Jonathan and David is moving and will spend weeks Reflecting on the affection they share, the care they express to one another, and the truly self-sacrificial love that Jonathan displays. But I want to make very clear that the point of all of this is that Jonathan's response to the coming king is the right one. His is the faithful response. This isn't merely the enthusiasm of a guy who shares a lot in common with another guy. This is the right response when one encounters the anointed of God. When it becomes clear that God's anointed has rescued His people, has crushed their great enemy, the only appropriate response is humility and covenant and total devotion. Keep an eye on the significance of what's happening here. The actions of Jonathan have real political consequences. Jonathan is the prince. He is the heir. His possessions are the possessions of the heir of the throne. 
when he gives his robe and his sword and his armor to David, he's giving David the trappings of the prince of Israel. Now David, not Jonathan, strikes with the prince's sword. Now David, not Jonathan, bears the prince's armor. Now David, not Jonathan, wears the prince's robe. Jonathan's gift is a statement that the throne belongs not to the pretender's line, but to the true king of Israel. And think, think, just imagine for a moment what it must have been like. The evening is settled in and all of these soldiers are enjoying the fruit of victory at a fireside. Drinking wine and eating food and reflecting on the brilliant victory. And this young shepherd boy who rescued the people of God. And then you see him walking by, wearing the prince's armor and bearing the prince's sword. Can you imagine what the whispers must have been like? Keep reading. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The rumors of a coming king, the rumors of the shepherd boy who slayed the giant and led the armies of Israel to great victory, the rumors that he wore the prince's armor and carried the prince's sword, these rumors have spread to every village in Israel. And as Saul returns with his armies, it becomes clear who is truly the hero of Israel. David has struck his tens of thousands. I like how this section is structured because it sort of flip-flops time a bit. As soon as we hear that Jonathan has handed his sword and his armor and his robe to David, the story fast-forwards a bit to let us know that bearing the sword of the prince, David is sent out to war regularly. And every time he sets foot on the battlefield, he leads the armies to great victory. So great that Saul sets him in charge of the men of war. And this pleases the court of Saul. And this pleases the people of Israel. David's reputation goes before him as the mighty victor. But just after that sneak preview, the story skips back. We got a glimpse of David, the prince, striking tens of thousands of Israel's enemies. And we might expect from this point 
that the story had skipped ahead a few years. That's not what happens. The author takes care to let us know that the next scene unfolds immediately after the defeat of Goliath. It's at that moment, before David's given opportunity to be the great leader of the armies of Israel, it's at that moment when David is merely a shepherd boy before he's a seasoned shoulder, shoulder, soldier, that the people of Israel shout of his might, for David has struck his tens of thousands. And I guess the reason I like the structure of this section is because the song that the women of Israel are singing is prophetic. It's a song of hope as much as it's a song of victory. Because David hasn't yet struck his tens of thousands. David is just a boy. But the words of this song are an expression of hope in the coming kingdom. Saul has struck his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. It's almost like a a summary of the history of the kingdom of Israel. The pretender king's days are waning, and the people are already looking forward to the line of Jesse. You might think I'm reading too much into that. But listen to Saul's reaction. What more can he have but the kingdom? Saul sees what's happening and he's jealous and he's afraid because the words of this song are an expression of hope in someone else's kingdom, not his. So the victor of Israel crushes the enemy of God's people. And immediately the faithful son of Israel pledges his life and his possessions in a dramatic act of affection. And immediately the faithful daughters of Israel sing songs of praise. That's that's how you respond to the coming king. When you see the coming king risk his life to rescue his people, And when you see the coming king declare victory over our great enemy, and when you see the coming king defeat death, you devote all that you are to him, and you sing songs of praise over his victories. That's how to respond to the coming king. But that is not Saul's response. Keep reading. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. You may remember that when the Spirit of God departed from Saul, a harmful spirit was sent in its stead. And you may remember that David is introduced to Saul as a relief from the torment that he encountered because of this spirit. When David played his lyre, Saul was comforted and the tormenting spirit would depart. So this episode is full of irony. 
Because Saul rages against the very person who had the power to comfort him. He sought to crush the very person who could restore him. He sought to pierce the very one who was sent to save. And that, friends, is a shadow. Saul sought to pierce the anointed son who was sent to save. And as the authority of Israel sought to pin David against the wall, the authorities of Israel sought to pin Jesus against a tree. Oh, how foolish they were. Because this is the only one capable of relieving their torment. There are two responses to the coming king. When you see your Redeemer, you will devote to Him all that you have and all that you are. And you will sing songs of praise because of the victory He's won. Or, you will rage against the only one capable of relieving your torment. I think it's important to note that Saul's rage is driven by jealousy. His problem with the coming king is a glory problem. He's stealing my glory. I'm the king. They should be praising me. This is what he's saying. But the thing about the coming kingdom is that all glory and all honor are due to the king. When he arrives, all glory goes to him. And for one who loves glory, that is a tough proposition. So, John the Baptist was a hugely popular figure among the people of Israel in Jesus' day. Thousands, literally thousands, flocked to see Him. His words were powerful. His figure was striking. The people loved Him. When He spoke, they trembled. So there's this fascinating moment in His ministry. After Jesus begins to preach and teach, let me read it to you. John's disciples came to John and said to Him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and everyone's going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears Him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. He must increase but I must decrease. That is the right response to the true king of Israel. And that is most definitely not what Saul has done. There's a striking juxtaposition here when we saw Jonathan, the heir to the throne, 
devote all that he has to the coming king. And then we watch Saul rage against him. Jonathan was to inherit the throne. Jonathan was to be king. Jonathan was to be the most powerful man among his people. To command armies. To be attended. To have servants and cooks and pleasures unimaginable. And yet, as soon as he sees the work of the coming king, he sets that all aside. He must increase, but I must decrease, because this is the true king of Israel. Saul, though, is hungry for glory, so he hates the idea of the true king of Israel, and he rages against them. Saul so adores the broken kingdom that he rages against the coming kingdom. I must increase and he must decrease. That's the message of Saul. And if you haven't sworn loyalty to Christ, if you haven't left everything to seek the kingdom of God, then that is your disposition also. And sometimes I think we make the practice of Christianity so complicated. There are so many books about how to follow Jesus, how to be a Christian coworker, how to be a Christian mom, how to be a Christian boyfriend. And maybe those are good questions to ask. But the question you need to ask yourself this morning is far more important. It is the central question. Have you devoted everything to the coming king, or are you raging against him? Let me ask it again. Have you devoted everything to the coming king or are you raging against him? You have to answer that. What does it look like for you to devote everything to the coming king? I don't have an answer to that question, but I do know that for Jonathan, it meant a career change. It meant handing over his most valuable possessions. It meant stepping aside from a position of honor. It meant risking his life to prepare for the coming kingdom. And it meant compromising his relationship with his father. He gave up honor. He gave up wealth. He gave up family. And he gave up position. And he did it all with joy because he loved the coming king as his own soul. And what does it look like for you to rage against the coming king? I don't really have an answer to that question, but I, I can tell you that for Saul there were signs. Like fear. Saul was afraid. He was afraid because he didn't want to surrender that which the coming king demanded. Because he loved the broken kingdom and he didn't want to part with it. Fear is a sign, I think, that you're raging against the king and his work. And anger is a sign. Saul was angry and he raged. Why was he angry? Because the coming kingdom meant losing the things that he loved. Because he desperately clung to his throne. And the coming kingdom meant losing it. I'll be honest, trying to see myself as Saul is sometimes difficult because it all kind of seems a little abstract, right? 
The truth is, though, from our first breath, we were all pretender kings. From day one, we sought praise, and we sought pleasure, and we sought riches, and we sought honor. We sought glory, and we would not be denied. Think about it. I know it's easy to dismiss statements like that, but think about the sort of things you do and say. And I think you'll see it for what it is. It's why we go into debt for an an impressive car or why we're ashamed to drive a beater because we want respect. We want to be impressive. It's why we work 70-hour weeks. It's why we're the first ones in and the last ones out. We want praise. We want riches. It's why we look at porn. It's why we cheat on our spouses. It's why we eat food we can't afford. It's why we drink too much. Because we want pleasure without measure. And it's why we name drop or title drop or salary drop or neighborhood drop or I just ran my 14th marathon drop. Because we want glory. We were all pretender kings. But now the true king has arrived. And the answer to that most important question, whether you've devoted everything to the coming king or whether you're raging against them, is largely answered when you evaluate how much you've changed since you discovered him. Have you set aside your rights to the throne, pretender king? Are you still reaching for a better home, a shinier car, nicer clothes? Or are you selling your stuff to meet kingdom needs? Have you devoted your riches to the coming king? Or do you rage? Are you yet burning the candle at both ends, working 80-hour weeks and neglecting kingdom matters for glory and respect and wealth? Have you devoted your career and your retirement and your time to the coming king? Or do you yet rage? Is the ultimate aim of your efforts to secure more pleasure for yourself, more rest for yourself, more security for yourself, Have you devoted your life to the coming King? Or do you yet rage? Are you afraid to speak His name to your coworkers, To your neighbors? To your friends? Because you don't want to compromise that relationship? You don't want to look ridiculous? Have you devoted your reputation to the coming King? Or do you yet rage? Are your words and thoughts filled with affection for this broken kingdom or filled with praise and hope in the coming king? Are you campaigning for the respect of the people around you? Do you fight to be impressive? Do you direct the conversation to your strengths, to your victories, to your glory, or to Christ's? Is your hope in the coming kingdom or do you yet rage? These questions are not meant to stir guilt in you. 
These questions are meant to teach you where your height, where your heart might rage yet against the coming kingdom. It was hard to write these questions because I'm like in so many of these categories right now. But when you find your heart raging against the coming king, repent. Embrace him. And soon, because he really is coming and his kingdom really is better. Let's pray together.